I was doing a show for you. But then I stopped and said there'll be a part two. So welcome back, my friends, to this charming part two of my own birthday show for you. What the heck is this? I know you want to blurt. You heard Thomas the books you read, and then you left, you stupid twerp. I hope you've got more, because this is your podcast work, and I didn't really plan this out at all. Sorry. my voice a bit and uh let's continue with my random birthday special i've got i've got uh i've got a, a, a I, I ended up writing a new song uh, after i stopped recording so uh i'm gonna finish this list of books and then i'll sing you a new song and and that'll be this episode so uh yeah i welcome back and uh yeah this is i guess it's like sort of my birthday slash holiday special there's a lot of holidays happening this month there's like there, there there's there's solstice and and hanukkah and actually i just had a i just had a a hanukkah uh uh um latka last night my 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 land my landlords um the the you know the folks who live in the big house up at the other end of the property uh they celebrate hanukkah so they there, there was like there was a knock on my door and someone was like latkas so i got some latkas it was pretty great uh, but yeah, so there's, there, let's see, what did I say? Solstice, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, I think is the thing, but I'm not, like, um, I'm not super plugged into the whole Kwanzaa, Kwanzaa celebration thing. Um, there's also, uh, Festivus, maybe that is just Solstice, but, uh, I have friends who celebrate Festivus and they have, like, a pole and they put presents under the pole. You know, I, I had a, I, oh, and of course Christmas, sorry. I'm not at war. I just, uh, I, that, yeah, that's also a thing. Christmas. There you go. I had a, it, what made me think of it was, um, you know, thinking of like a, a, a Festivus poll or whatever. I had a professor, professor, teacher, educator. He had him. I think he had a PhD. Anyway, one of my teacher, my history teacher in high school, Keith Vanderlaan, uh, <clears throat> who's great. Uh, he, I think he's still there at my high school. Uh, his brother actually is a, a, a biblical archaeologist, which, uh, but uh, he has a series of video lectures called "That the World May Know," where like he goes out to like Megiddo and, and Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Gethsemane and all that, whatever, and then he sits there and he's like, "Yeah, you know, Jesus stood here, and and that's where the demons went into an army of pigs." Um, yeah, I, they were really big when I was a child in my family. And anyway, his brother, brother of video series that the world may know guy. And it, my, my sister and I used to make fun of the, those videos because he would always say, if you will. Like he said, if you will, like two or three times in an hour long lecture, which is a lot. Like it was a very favorite phrase by him. And when I brought him up to his brother, who was my teacher in high school, my history teacher, 
my history teacher would always say, uh, oh yeah, those are some pretty good videos, if you will. Like, like he was aware that it was a tick that his brother did. Anyway, history teacher uh, at a Christian Christian high school, but he the, the guy was kind of a uh, uh, he was sort of his own free thinker, kind of a, a weirdo. There's a there's a particular uh, sort of anti-authoritarian kind of secondary culture within Christianity, where there's these people who are like. Well, you know, like in the early church, people people actually wore an X as a sign of Jesus. So I don't wear a cross, I wear an X. Like there's all this kind of weird historical Christianity mumbo jumbo. And he was like definitely one of those. And so anyway, this is all preamble to tell you that his family, instead of having a tree for Christmas, because he's because his, his thing was always like, he was like super against like that. Because he's like, if, if Christ is like this, person that we believe is still alive and working in the church why would we cut down a tree and then bring a like a dead tree into the house as a symbol of god like if we actually believe god's still around and like that's that's a pretty fair point even though you know the tree is like a stolen symbol from the solstice uh, pagan traditions but it's a good point so his family <laughs> had a very large rock like this like 400 pound like chunk of granite or something it was like about three feet tall and they would bring that into the house and that was their symbol of christmas they're like symbol of 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 jesus for jesus birthday it's only now that i'm telling you this that i'm realizing how deeply weird that really is because it you know, like there's a bunch of stuff in in the 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 Bible about how God is like our rock. Um, I think the, I think there's a, there's a verse that's something like the Lord is our rock and our salvation, uh, our help and our ever present help in times of trouble. And and in 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 the sort of the the Holy Land, I guess you could call it the Levant, the um, the the Near East. There's so it's so funny that I. I've, I'm actually minoring in the history of that area and I still don't have a good catch-all word for it. It's almost as if all of these terms are just made up by people and they're not really adequate descriptions. But uh, in that area, let's say in the, the, what shall we call it? Well, but anyway, so the point is like in the desert, like the Sinai Desert on that peninsula there, uh, one of the things that will happen is it, it gets very, very hot in the day and it gets very, very cold at night. So if you're, if you're moving around in that particular desert, one of the things that people will do is that in the day you'll go and you'll get in the shade of a big rock because there's like not a lot of trees or whatever. And, and then at night, what happens is, is during the day, these rocks soak up a lot of heat and, and actually hold a lot of ambient heat. So at night, when it's cold, like it can get down below freezing, you'll actually, um, you'll, if you go and kind of cuddle up next to one of these rocks, it keeps you warm. And so in the Bible, there's a lot of imagery around God being a rock. And it's it's this very practical thing for, for a lot of the contemporary people who are reading these texts, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, that if you compare God to a rock, it's a very practical, helpful thing where it's like God is protecting you and sheltering you from hot and cold. 
So it's like two extremes of of the environment that you're being protected from by these rocks. So this is why this teacher of mine was like, well, let's let's uh, have these rocks be uh, a symbol of God. One other fun fact about the, the Holy Land and rocks. Uh, in the, I believe it was the 1700s, a shit ton of Europeans froze to death in Jerusalem over Christmas week because they were like, we're going to the Holy Land. It is a desert. We should be out in the desert. Of course, it's hot in the desert. And like nobody prepared for the fact that it was going to be below freezing. So it snowed. I think it snowed a couple inches around Jerusalem and just shitloads of Europeans froze to death because they had like no preparation at all. It's almost as if if you roll into someone else's country without properly doing your homework, it could be dangerous to you. And, you know, I mean, I think that that, that there, it's a it's just a wonder to me sometimes that the British conquered so much of the world because they really seem to not know how anything worked in the places where they conquered. But anyway, I'm getting way off topic. So this teacher of mine was like, God is a rock. And it's like, OK, sure. And, you know, there's the other stuff about like Christ will be the cornerstone and there's all this imagery and, and Christ calls Peter the first Pope. He calls him the rock. Anyway, <clears throat> I wonder if that's why Dwayne Johnson chose that nickname. I'm getting so far off track. The point is this teacher of mine, he was, he was like, God is a rock. So we're going to have a rock instead of a tree that we chopped down. So every uh, beginning of December, him and his kids, they would haul this rock into their house. They would set it up in their living room and then they would decorate it. They'd like wrap like lights around this rock and stuff. And that's that's the part that really that's really weird to me is that they would decorate this rock. So not only are they like, you know, like. It's like, okay, a rock is God, like, and there's all this, like, if you're really into the Bible and, like, Christian mythology or whatever, like, that's a thing. But then you're wrapping Christmas lights around it. It's, it's, it just feels so tawdry. It, it, it feels to me like if I Indiana Jones myself into a warehouse and found the Ark of the Covenant somewhere and, and then I, 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 I got it. And I, I took it home and then I just like mushed a bunch of candles on top of it. It's, it's like, what do you do? You're, you're kind of mixing the metaphor by gilding the, the lily pad. Is that the gilding the lily pad? Yeah, sure. Gilding the lily pad. And, and, and it's just weird. Oh man, that guy was so weird. He, I'll tell you one more story about him. And then, uh, and, 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 and I don't care. It's my podcast and it's my birthday. Like if you're here, you're into these rambles. So one more story about him. When he wanted to get the class to settle down, he would yell three words in succession. And so it was kind of the, the, the mumbling of, of the class. And so he would yell pizza and about half the class would like kind of listen. And then he'd yell money and like he'd get like another third and there'd be like a few left. And then he'd go sex and the room would be dead silent. Pizza, money, sex. If you're ever trying to get a room full of teenagers to shut up and pay attention to you, just yell those three words in pretty quick succession. And I, I think I think 
that'll work. I don't know if they teach that at pedagogy school, but like I would assume. Uh, so one more thing about uh, the Holy Land and rocks. Uh, there's this this legend. I believe this is a Jewish legend. I I only heard this once uh, years and years ago from uh, I don't even remember where I heard this. So this this might totally be something I heard in a dream. It might not be true, but there's this legend that God is is creating the world and he sends out all the angels to do stuff. You know, sort sort of a like you know you go 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 make uh, go make the coastline of Norway and. and the slurdy bard fast, the angel flies out and like makes it all up with fjords and or, or whatever, you know, like that kind of thing. So the angels go out, they've, they've pretty much finished making the world and then they come back to God and they go, we, we have all these extra rocks. We have too many extra rocks. What should we do with them? And God's, God looks down at the world and kind of points at the, the, you know, the area around Jerusalem, the Holy Land, the, the Levant, the Near East, whatever you want to call it. And says, ah, just put them there. And so that's why there's so many rocks there, I guess. It's just a, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting, like, creation myth to me. Because I feel like a lot of creation myths have something happen where there's an extra thing. And then they're like, oh, well, let's make that into, you know, oh, we've got some extra clay, uh, people. Or, um, oh, we, we've got these these extra we've got this extra water. Well, that's waterfalls or, what you know, whatever. But this is just like, we have extra rocks. Bah. Screw it. Put him there, I guess. There you go. <clears throat> anyway, uh, let's move on to our main goal today, which is for me to finish this annotated bi bibliography that I'm giving you. So, uh, <laughs> I'm going to take a sip of water. And I'm going to rub my hands together and I'm going to begin. A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. This book is, it's essentially Bill Bryson heard uh, uh, Carl Sagan say, if you want to bake a cake, you must first invent the universe and went, okay, but how do we invent the universe? And, and so he sort of constructs a history of how we got to now and focuses on the creation of the sciences, which in turn were what allowed us to understand the creation of the world. So he sort of develops you, he leads you through the development of physics and mathematics and biology and botany and, and so on. It's, it's an excellent book. And if you, if you just sort of want a basic grounding of the large movements of history and sort of human development, it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. I mean, almost everything on that I read this year, I would recommend to anyone uh, unless I say otherwise. <clears throat> Next book, Salt, A World History by Mark Kurlansky. So we go from the, the very broad to the very, very, uh, <laughs> very, very narrow, the very specific. So Salt is a history of the world revolving entirely around a single commodity. And Oh boy, howdy. It is way more exciting and interesting than you would imagine. Uh, great book. Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. I want to say I love this book, but it's the first in a series which hasn't been completed yet. I accidentally started reading it because a friend said it was great. It's a wonderful book. It's so good. 
However, it ends on a cliffhanger, as does its sequel, which I have not read and will not read until Patrick Rothfuss finishes the freaking books. I, I, I... I, I, I genuinely read this on accident, folks. I, I made a rule for myself starting about two years ago that I just, I will not start a series if it's not finished. I don't care. Like, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna George R. R. Martin myself ever again. It's, it's freaking annoying. It's, it's, it's insulting to, it's insulting, I think. You know, I mean, if you're writing things and, and, and everything's coming out along a schedule or whatever, I guess, but but I just, I, I feel like I have spent more time reading statements by George R. R. Martin about why he hasn't finished writing a series of books that I don't even really like than I've spent actually reading the books. Like, that's the thing. I, oh, this could be a whole rant. And, and maybe it should be, but, but I guess long story short, folks, I just want, I want to be able to read the series and, and, and enjoy it. And if not, I guess I'll wait. I mean, there's, there's a couple ongoing series that I'm, I'm deep into, you know, freaking Dresden Files, The Expanse, whatever, but I like reading something where I know that there's, there's a resolution coming. And it, it doesn't doesn't mean I need all my questions answered. It doesn't mean everything needs to be wrapped up. I just, I've been J.J. Abrams too many times. It's too many times where where they clearly didn't have any idea how to stick the landing, and they didn't. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. <clears throat> Moving on. Hamilton by Ron Chernow. I finally read it. I finally read the book that inspired us all to fall in love with, well, the book that inspired the musical that inspired us all to fall in love with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, gotta say, the book is amazing. He is way more of a dick than he comes, I mean, he comes across as a pretty big dick in the musical, but he was kind of a dick. Like, like, he was a dick. I mean, he was our dick. He was a, you know, he's a charming, Richard, but at the same time, I just, you could make an argument that he's the least problematic founding father, but at the same time, they're all deeply products of their time. All of them. I mean, that's another whole rant that we'll do another time. The book is great. It's really well researched. It's highly entertaining. It's a biography that reads like a novel, blah, blah, blah. The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. Uh, I have been spending a lot of this year chatting with a friend who's working on starting a food-based business. And so I've been reading some of the sort of larger, um, broader cultural food thought books. Uh, There's a couple more Michael Pollan books on this list. And uh, yeah, The Omnivore's Dilemma. It's it's really fun. He, He tells the story of four different meals that he... He tries to be as involved in their creation as possible. So, like, he buys a cow that ends up going to McDonald's all the way to he goes hunting for wild javelina, like, in the mountains in California. Super fun. Dead Until Dark by Charlene Harris. This is trashy, goofy, fun, vampire romance action fantasy fiction. I don't know. It's the it's it's what, uh, uh, uh um, is it True Blood? 
I think True Blood is what was based on on the Charlene Harris. It's the Sookie, Sookie Stack. My name is Sookie Stackhouse. It's the Sookie Stack. It's the Southern Vampire Mysteries is the name of the series. This is the first one. I really enjoyed it. Will I read the rest of the series, which has been concluded? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I could see myself reading more of these. They're, they're super fun. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a story about a, a woman falling in love with a vampire but unlike something like Twilight, where you're like, why is the vampire into this woman? Suki Stackhouse actually has some sort of supernatural something going on with her, too. So she's, she's, she's you know, there's reason for that interest in, in that way. And then also, um, the, the call to adventure for Suki Stackhouse is that the, the vampire gets attacked and then Suki saves his life. So, and and, and you, she's an active, it's an active choice. Which I feel like in a lot of these sort of fantasy blah, 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 the, the, the character either gets dragged into it, especially if the main character is female in a lot of these sort of classic fantasy stories. They don't really have a choice, but like Sookie walks out, sees the vampire guy getting attacked and could totally just get in her pickup truck and drive away. But she doesn't. And I, I think that's... It just puts, it puts an entirely different tone on over everything. Uh, plus, in in the genre of fantasy novels that have a version of Elvis still running around, so I'm talking about like Odd Thomas or Bubba Hotep or or this book. Uh, this book is my favorite. It has my favorite version of Undead Elvis in anything ever. So, uh, go go look for that. Ultralight Backpack and Tips by Mike Cleland. He actually put an exclamation point after his name. This is a book of like a hundred and some tips for ultralight backpacking. Uh, you all know I run a bunch and I've actually built myself a camping setup that fits into a bag I can wear while running at my comfortable running pace. So it's something, you know, it's something I'm working on. I, I read that book last summer and it was, it was a lot of fun. And I've done some ultralight uh, running camp camping. So like I ran, there's a place you can camp like 10 miles south of town. And back in February, I ran there and camped. It was it was super fun. Uh, <clears throat> the Time Machine by H.G. Wells. It's more techno thriller H.G. Wells nonsense. Uh, yeah, the the Time Machine is fascinating because, to the best of my knowledge, it is the first science fiction book that has humanity in the future devolving. You know, there's there's a lot of of fantasy and sci-fi and things where where things devolve um i mean even the orcs in lord of the rings are devolved elves um but this is kind of one of the first to the to, i mean there might be other things that predate it but this is one of the earliest ones that i'm aware of where you know humanity splits into these the aloi and the morlocks and the morlocks are underground and the aloi are above ground and it's really, really fascinating because you can read this book as a sequel to George Orwell's 1984, which is an, another book I read this year. So 1984 kind of has humanity splitting into two classes where there's sort of this elite class and then there's sort of the proles. Um, and if you kind of, you could draw a pretty direct line to the Morlocks and the Eloi. Anyway, that's my weird uh, headcanon for the year. 1984 and the Time Machine are a series. Moving on to our next book, which is uh, The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan. 
very th this book is sort of a natural history of the United States I believe the United States centered around four plants so there's uh, cannabis and apples uh, and a couple of uh, the tulip I guess it's the history of the world uh, I so here's my favorite thing I learned from this book apples do not grow true from seeds so you can take an apple seed out of any apple anywhere put it in the ground and the tree that will grow from it is not going to match the apple that you ate it's entirely a genetic lottery what seeds come out in apples so every time you have a variety of apple that's like the same variety so it's like a golden delicious a golden delicious a golden delicious all of those are grafts from one original golden delicious tree that blows my mind I, st I still can't wrap my head around that. I read the book like six months ago or whatever, and I just can't quite wrap my head around it. It's 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 weird. It's so weird. Apple grafting. I, I need to take a botany class. <clears throat> Baggy Wrinkles by Lucy Bellwood. This is a little comic about sailing on tall ships and stories about tall ships and pirates and things like that. Uh, Lucy Bellwood is a Portland-based artist. I've never met her, but we have some mutual friends who think that we'd be pals. Uh, Lucy Bellwood, if you're listening to this, let's be pals. If you know Lucy Bellwood, tell her that we should be pals because I love tall ships. I love comics. I play accordion and uh, people think I sound piratey. Metamorphosis by Ovid. It's funny that I read this well after I did all of my uh, ancient Roman poetry, ancient Greek poetry studies. I just, I never managed to get around to reading this and it is fantastic. This is, again, you know, talking about sort of a, an older text that influenced a lot of texts in the way that H.G. Wells influenced sci-fi. Ovid's Metamorphosis is really influential on the fantasy genre, just in general. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's the it's so weird. Like like even now, it's so weird. Like some of the imagery and, and you know, a lot of our understanding of these ancient myths comes from Ovid. Um, you know, you probably had a book of, of ancient Greek and Roman myths as a kid with, you know, some illustrations and stuff, and probably left out the one of of Zeus fucking a swan or whatever, but a lot of them are adapted from Ovid and it's this absolutely it's just bizarre and strange. You know, there's there's all these legends of like, you know, that th this hero kills a dragon and then he rips out the dragon's teeth and then he buries them in the ground and out of the ground grow ant people, the Myrmidons. You know, just stuff like that. It's, it's just amazing. I, oh, mm. next book, Foundation by Isaac Asimov. I have never read this. This is this is like this is for sci-fi. This is for space opera sci-fi. Like this is right up there with Dune, uh, in terms of influence over the genre. It was inspirational for Star Wars and all kinds of stuff. And it honestly feels like a very important book for right now. Uh, this professor comes up with an algorithm that predicts sort of the broader the broader future of humanity he figures out the maths and predicts that all human society is going to collapse within the next hundred years so he begins a project to preserve humanity's history it's 
oh man, it's it's so cool. It is definitely very masculine. Uh, it's just like just dudes, dude, dude, doodly dude. I don't, rem- I can't remember a single woman appearing in the book. However, the reason I finally got around to reading it is that it's being adapted into a television series by Apple or some Apple's Apple Plus, Apple Plus. Uh, it's coming out next year, and the trailer. I saw the trailer and was like, "Damn, this looks amazing." Uh, it's it's honestly it's the only trailer for something that's upcoming that I'm really excited about, just based on the look of it and sort of the feel of it. Sorry, Denny Villeneuve. Uh, and this, this, the 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 adaptation, they just they just cast gender and race blind for everything. So it's this really diverse cast. Because none of these characters need to be a particular gender. Like, you know, the, if you read the book Gender Blind, it totally works. It's not like there's like... I mean, honestly, you could tell any story gender blind, I guess. But to see them in the adaptation just being like, screw it. You know, they're, they're going full Lady Thor with it. Why not? Uh, yeah, it, it was a really interesting book. Kind of like a lot of Asimov. that It feels like it's more about ideas than characters <clears throat> next the longest title on this list seducimus devilatius or a true narrative of the sorceries and witchcrafts exercised by the devil and his instruments upon miss christian shaw daughter of mr john shaw in the county of renfrew in the west of scotland from august 1696 to april 1697 h newman and a bell grasshopper in the poultry london and at the cross keys and bible in cornhill near stocks market 1698 by sir francis grant lord cohen uh, that was the book that formed the basis for my undergrad thesis that I've talked about previously on this podcast. I may actually release, once I get it all edited and everything, I may release a recording of me presenting the thesis. I've been asked to present it at a conference coming up this spring. And uh, so maybe I'll share it with you folks as sort of a, a test run. Dakota, A Spiritual Geography by Kathleen Norris. Kathleen Norris is a Christian mystic who is a Benedictine oblate. So she's not a Benedictine monk, nun, whatever, but she's friends with a bunch of Benedictines and she writes about visiting their monasteries and sort of, you know, she's, I was talking about that sort of odd stream of kind of independent street Christians uh, at the beginning of the podcast. And she's definitely one of those, like she's into meditation and poetry and she uses the word fuck in her books. You know, she's very... She's very earthy. And my, I got into her, her writing because my mom is a huge fan of her. And I initially read one of her books just so I could connect with my mother. You know, it, it, it's hard. My, my mother and I are separated by so many things, you know, not just age and the fact that she's my mom, but, you know, she's very Midwest. She's from Michigan. She was raised by people who lived through the Great Depression. She She's also the youngest of her family. So I have aunts who are in their 80s now, which is weird. Uh, I mean, it's not weird, but it's just one of those things you think about it. And you're like, I have an aunt who's 80, but I'm only, you know, 33. Uh, but so I started reading Kathleen Norris's books to connect with my mother. And I actually found I, I really enjoy her writing. She's she's very honest. She's very, uh, I, said, I used the word earthy earlier, but she's also her just her prose is excellent. She's a, she's a poet. She was part of the New York art scene in the uh, in the 70s. 70s and 80s there there was a guest on this podcast uh a, a 
earlier this year, um, Kathy, the the Episcopal bishop, and Kathy um, was part of that same art scene. Like, it's kind of the same time, the same era, where it's sort of this emerging theater and, and poetry and, and the new wave cinema and all that kind of stuff. And Kathleen Norris was also part of that. And then she and her husband ended up leaving that to go be art teachers in North Dakota or in Northern South Dakota. And so she's written all these amazing books kind of about loneliness and depression and meditation and mysticism. And I like them. You know, it started out as a way to connect with my mom, but now I like them. The subtle art of not giving a fuck and... <clears throat> Sorry, where was I? The subtle art of not giving a fuck and Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, both by Mark Manson. Uh, these, I wanted to like these, but, you know, they're, they are what they are. It, every few years, someone comes out with a book that basically has this thesis. If you just chill out, life will be more enjoyable. It's, it's, it's middle path Buddhism repackaged for the Twitter, Twitter era. He's a fun writer. He has a lot of fun things to say. And the, the one takeaway from his books that I actually thought was really good that I'd never heard explained this well is the difference between, um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, lot of, a lot of debate out there in the world right now about taking responsibility and personal responsibility. And people, people abuse those, uh, those terms a lot, you know, because it's something like, you know, you'll see a poor person, you'll say, you know, some of these, you know, alt-right dickheads will be like, well, they need to take some personal responsibility for the fact that they're on welfare or whatever, you know, just like dumb shit like that. And, and not really addressing the fact that, that we do have social injustices and we do have things that are outside of people's control. Um, and, and Mark Manson wrote a really, there's an excellent little part in one of his books where he, he explains it along the lines of, someone leaves a, a baby in a basket on your doorstep and you open your door and there's, oh, there's a baby here. You didn't put the baby there. It's not your fault that there's a baby on your doorstep, but what you decide to do is up to you. It is your responsibility. You didn't cause this. Nothing you did made this happen, but how you react to it is up to you and how you process it and what you decide to do. You know, do you pick up the baby and put it in a dumpster? Do you call social services? Do you take the baby inside and just decide to adopt it? Um, you know, that that is up to you. And I, I, I really enjoyed that because I think, you know, obviously there's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but that is a little bit closer to how I feel about it, that how I react to things in my world is up to me, even if I didn't cause them even if the people who caused them should very much be held accountable and these, you know, inequities and injustices should be addressed. It's still something where the, the only thing I have control over is how I react to them. You know, I, I, I couldn't, I don't necessarily uh, need to have so, it so sweary. For instance, the next book on my list, Unfuck Yourself by Gary John Bishop. It's the same thing. It's more of the same stuff. This the Unfuck Yourself by Gary John Bishop is absolutely like a power of positive thinking, like 
you know, you create your reality by how you behave and how you react to things, but with lots of sweariness to, to make it more Twittery for the kids. I don't know that, that unfuck yourself got recommended to me. Cause I read the subtle art of not giving a fuck, which, you know, a friend of mine read it, and it's just kind of, I read a lot of books. And so sometimes I read books that I'm not really that into. Um, but you know, I, I want to connect with people or, or I want to understand something. And you know, that's, that's sort of how this, this works. Um, for instance, uh, I read another book this year called Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. And I think out of everything I read this year, that one is probably the one that I am the most like, yeesh. Uh, Thomas Sowell is a conservative uh, writer. A lot of people are really into him kind of on the right and Republicans and stuff. And he is critical of the current reigning interpretation of of race in american history in academia and he kind of gets a little conspiracy theory about it and i'm not really that into his whole thing but this is a book i read because my somewhat conservative dad was repeating some of thomas sewell's ideas because he'd heard him on a podcast or something and I found that one of the best ways to really engage in a political discussion with my father is to read the book by the person that my dad is into at the moment, because I can read faster than my dad. And it's like, yes, I understand Thomas Sowell's ideas. I read his freaking book, dad, and I don't agree with him because of these points, which I can enumerate because I read his book. This was, this was how I completely ended uh, all mentions of Jordan Peterson in my family's home a couple of years ago. You know, and, and also I, I genuinely do enjoy challenging my, my thinking. And one of the best ways to do that is to read a book by someone that I deeply, abidingly disagree with. And, and in terms of, of sort of a lot of these thinkers, you know, Thomas Sewell isn't a Dinesh D'Souza. He's not arguing in bad faith. He really genuinely feels like he's figured some stuff out and he lays it out pretty well. His, his historical scholarship is, isn't bad. I, I have issues with some of it, um, but you know, it's, it's all footnoted. It's all referenced. It's all, he's inviting you to go check. And I, I think that's really important. You know, Dinesh D'Souza just makes shit up. I, I deeply loathe Dinesh D'Souza. I will never read one of his books. His scholarship is terrible and he's inflammatory and ugh. But yeah, you know, I, I really seek to challenge myself and, and I think Thomas Sewell's book was one of the most challenging in terms of really letting a person on the opposite end of the political spectrum to me have their say and get to explain himself as clearly as, as possible. Um, and it it was it was a fascinating perspective. Like I said, I don't really agree with it, but fascinating perspective. Speaking of fascinating perspective, another techno thriller, Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne. I've never I, I I've seen umpteen television and film adaptations of this. I never read it. All of my like reading in high school and everything growing up, I've never read this book. You know, I'd seen the Wishbone version, but I'd ne never read this book. And what's incredible about it to me is is how much of it is really just people wandering around in caves. Like like they see some giants for a second and they find some 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 mammoth bones, but 
like they don't even really see any dinosaurs or anything like like the movie adaptations are definitely like okay jules verne you wrote that they go under the earth and they see some cool shit but what if we actually showed some cool shit like it's it's definitely one of those things it's like a christopher nolan film like it sets up a really amazing concept and then doesn't deliver anything remotely near the level of like coolness of what it i saw tenet the other night and i was just like meh um yeah sorry nolan fanboys i didn't like tenet woo you know just like one of those things though it sets up a really cool premise and then doesn't really deliver a lot on it uh but you know journey to the center of the earth it's a classic and now i've read it next up the strain probably the strangest book i read this year a book called pork by chris freddie Pork is a collection of short stories about talking animals in the forests of England. And I genuinely, I've read the book, I genuinely do not know who it is written for. Because it's too whimsical to not be... It's like, it's very whimsical, but it's definitely not for children because it's very, very gory and violent and also like kind of sexual at times. It's like these like talking animal stories that are meant to really reflect like real animalness. So like, they're like, there's like a badger who like almost kills a hedgehog and then like another animal gets hit by a car and it's it's like super dark. And like the cover is very lurid. Like the cover is, is like, these animals and there's like they're like <sighs> i i can't quite explain it but it, it was i found it in a free pile it was like a pulp novel and i was just like i have no idea what this is i gotta read it and it was so deeply strange the guns of avalon by roger zelazny this is the sequel to uh nine princes in amber the, it's the second book of the the Amber series by Roger Zelazny, and it is just as deeply weird as the first one. Imagine if you combined uh, like a comic book esque multiverse with Lord of the Rings, and you're sort of starting to get into that direction, but then also deeply inflected by sort of the Star Trek original series era idea of what aliens and and different creatures are. Super fun super weird oops yeah Roger Zelazny uh Manifest Destiny volume 6 and 7 by Dingus Roberts and Gienny Manifest Destiny is a comic book series that uh comes out uh monthly and I you know I, I wait until I've got a few issues stacked up and then I read it but I'm actually a subscriber because I want to support it uh the 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 premise is Lewis and Clark Expedition right right but they have a secret second they're keeping a secret second set of journals and and these have just been discovered and this series is based on these journals and they've been tasked by president jefferson to eliminate any monsters that they find so they're doing the whole lewis and clark journey with the same timeline and all that but along the way they keep running into like centaurs and and intelligent plants and zombies and and like weird bird creatures and um and cyclopses you know sasquatch is actually cyclopses you know weird shit like that and it's super fun and it's also very critical of kind of the the american westward expansion ethos and what that means and what's actually happening when that happens uh, sakagawi is a character in it and she's freaking awesome i don't know if i'm saying her name right but you know the 
the the Native American woman who's on the um on the the dollar gold coin, she you know it's, there's a lot more interesting characterizations. They actually added some uh, they added more female characters to the narrative who weren't on the original expedition to just kind of to flesh it out and give it a little bit more balance. And it's it's really fantastic. It's it's a it's a gold star example of how you can tell stories based on a historical era that yes was traditionally very white, very heterosexual, very male, but at the same time you can you can adapt them for today. You can you can talk about that time and place and its stories while still injecting a little more balance into it. And it's 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 phenomenal. I think I've read I think they're up to like issue 60 or something like that and they just the level of quality is very high. The art is great and it it runs the full gamut from like very dark horror to to some absolutely delightful comedy and it's just it's a lot of fun. Uh it it definitely has gone some places I did not expect. Reading Witchcraft by Marion Gibson. This is, uh, this, and I read another one of Marion Gibson's books called, uh, I'm just going to talk about both of them together, if I can find, oh, Witchcraft, The Basics. Marion Gibson is one of the leading uh, writers in the uh, field of witchcraft studies, and, you know, while I was working on my paper, I read these two books by her because they're really good surveys of the field. Uh, Witchcraft colon the basics especially is a great introduction to the subject that i've spent the better part of the last two years of my life working in so if you if you're interested in this i I recommend you pick it up it's like you can order it online from um i can't remember some university press it's like 20 bucks really really interesting read religion and the decline of magic by keith thomas This is 400 densely written pages about the way that organized religion ascended in the 1600s and 1700s and pushed out uh, sort of magical thinking by turning itself into a magical thinking thing. It's, oh man, I could talk about just this book for ages. So good. Evicted. Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. I was speaking with a friend who is a policy writer for a Seattle City Council member, and I asked her, what is one book that you in your profession, which is so wildly different from anything that I do, what is one book that you wish everyone would have read? So that speaks to sort of the issues that you're into. And this was the book. Um, It's about sort of low income rentals and how this whole cycle of people getting evicted and then renting sub, you know, subpar housing and sort of the huge industry around basically exploiting poor people who everyone needs somewhere to live. And so like there are people who are becoming millionaires off trailer parks, which the, the that just doesn't square. Like, like, renting people as is trailers full of mold for hundreds of dollars a month you know it it makes your blood boil to read it but at the same time what's what's really cool about this book evicted is that the author is not only writing about the people who are being exploited 
the author is also writing about the people who are doing the exploiting. So the, the landlords are also characters in this. This is a nonfiction book. The landlords are also appearing in this book. And you get to see their perspective and sort of what they're dealing with and and how it's not just that it's a bunch of evil landlords exploiting poor people. It's that a system exists, which is detrimental to, to humanity. Um moving book definitely one of the most um thought-provoking books i read this year i highly recommend it there's also an audiobook of it that uh you can get so if you're sort of not able to read fast you can get that audiobook and you know i mean especially right now where we're we're in this pandemic and you know the economy's all all weird and and a lot of people are facing potential eviction understanding how this country treats evictions is is important and this book is a great introduction to the topic, by, but it keeps it at a very focused human level so you can sort of connect with the problem. Because I think sometimes hearing hearing that thousands of people are evicted every month or whatever, it's, it's a number that doesn't register. It doesn't really connect, you know, but you can sort of focus down and read the story of a couple of families and really understand what it means and how it all works and what happens. Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion by Benjamin E. Zeller. There's a Heaven's Gate documentary that just came out on HBO called Cult of Cults or something like that, uh, which uses a lot of material from this book. Uh, Benjamin E. Zeller is one of the luminaries of new religious movement studies in academia, and this is the book on Heaven's Gate. If you really want to understand Heaven's Gate, uh, the UFO cult. This is the book. Uh, you know, I remember when this happened because you know I was I was I was a kid, but I was really into UFOs and stuff. And hearing that a bunch of people who were really into UFOs had committed mass suicide at this cult compound in California, like I was reading about it in the paper when I was probably too young to be. But this book really digs into their their thinking, and you know, Zeller's Zeller's big point is that we look at a lot of extremist groups like the heaven's gate cult or the people in waco or you know some of these sort of fringe groups and, and we say that they're weird and they're fringe and they're a bunch of wackos who went nuts but zeller really makes the case that these groups exist in conversation with our wider society and so if a group appears that's telling everybody that they're actually phaeton souls that need to return to the planet qualak like that is speaking to something in all of us in our wider culture and it's it's again it's one of those nonfiction books that is really compelling to read because it almost feels like a, a very strong narrative a wash in a sea of faith by john butler you've probably heard the phrase america is a christian nation it's something that people love to trumpet out when they're trying to take away people's rights to their bodies or people's rights it, 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 it just it's a very it's a phrase that is very tied to I think a lot of really it's become very politicized we'll put it that way to say taking away people's rights maybe that's a little bit of a charged thing for me to say on this podcast but it, it's a very politicized phrase to say America is a Christian nation and it's not really true uh you know, there were a lot of, you know, the Puritans and there were a lot of Christians sort of in the founding of America. But but one of the things that Butler points out is that in terms of people who were attending church at all in colonial America, it was about one in 10. 
10%. 1 in 10. That's just hold up your fingers. All 10. There you go. Not if you're driving, but hold up all of your fingers. Now put all of them down except for one. That many. 1 in 10. And over the course of the 1800s, that number grew and it reached its peak sometime in the mid 20th century, like the 1950s or so, at about six in 10. Six in 10. So keep that figure up and then hold up the fingers of the other hand. I know you understand how numbers work, but it's just fascinating to me that there is such a strong narrative based around this idea of a Christian nation and yet, it didn't peak until the 50s. And it, at that point, it was only like in the 60s, 60th percentile or whatever. I, I'm not good with maths, but I think you understand the point I'm making. And this book traces that history and sort of the history of various religious expressions arising in the United States. It's fantastic. If you want to be able to argue against someone who starts ranting about Christian nation, this is the book for you. <clears throat> Uh, another one of my top books for the year is the next book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. I've been pulling back and back and back from the digital world. And it's a it's a journey that I've talked about a lot on this podcast. And this coupled with the books by Cal Newport that I mentioned in the last episode really affected me this year. Nicholas Carr was a, I believe he's a Wall Street Journal writer who just started to realize that he was spending more and more time online and was curious about how it affected him. So he took some time off. And while he took the time off, he he researched all of this and he read all these studies and things like that. And there's a lot of evidence. It's not conclusive, but there's a lot of evidence that seems to be pointing to the fact that spending time online is not good for us uh, based on how we evolved and what we all do, you know? And, you know, I... I know there's a million arguments that can be made for continuing to use Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and I'm not I'm not making those arguments right now. Uh, but it's a fascinating book if, if you're interested in neuroscience or sort of understanding how things affect humanity and our development and and how this whole new digital world is affecting us. This is the book. You know, it, it's something that shocks me when I when I really stop and think about it that. We all entered this world of smartphones and social media and streaming porn and streaming content and all of that with, without considering it. It just sort of happened. We all bought into it and now we're all in it and we have no idea how it's going to affect us long term. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I have concerns. <laughs> Uh, and, and not to be too dark about it, but the, you know, this, this book really affected me and it, it definitely uh, made me think a lot. I'm not going to go, you know, quit my, quit everything I'm doing and go live in some hippie commune. I mean, especially after reading Commitment and Community by Rosabeth Moss Cantor, which is sort of considered to be the book on communes. She wrote it back in, I believe, the 60s or early 70s when sort of the commune movement was having a big renaissance with the whole you know hippie dropout tune in tune tune up get involved culture uh ken kesey and all that uh and it's a great book uh very very academic 
a lot of charts. New World a Comin', Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration by Judith Weisenfeld. I had the pleasure of getting to chat with the author of this over a, a Zoom class. She, she came and, and spoke to my class over Zoom and I got to ask her a few questions. This book is a history of what you could call cults, uh, but are just, I, 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 would, I would prefer to use the term new religious movements in the United States in the wake of the, the Great Migration. So post-Civil War, a, a ton of uh, African-Americans move north into sort of Chicago and the Midwest and, and, and out of the South, right? There's this Great Migration North. And all of these new religious movements rise up during this time. So you get things like the, um, the MST, the Moorish Science Temple, which um, all these black folks start saying, you know what, we're not, we're not black. That is a label that was put upon us by, by whites. We're actually Moors. We're, we're these, these proud Africans who have this ancient history and we're connected to this whole thing. Or like, uh, this is the birth of the, the, um, the nation of Islam. And, you know, the nation of Islam is like this whole thing that's all like uh, white people are a genetic aberration that was created by an evil mad scientist 20,000 years ago. You know, just like it's amazing, like all, what all these groups believe. And uh, Judith Weisenfeld tells the story of these groups being created and also what life was like for individual people who were part of these groups. And uh, it's if you're if you're looking for an, an interesting historical account of the black experience in the United States from a, from a very different angle than you're used to seeing it. This is a great book. It's, it's an academic book, but it's very much written with the layperson in mind as well. And uh, it's just wild. I highly recommend it. The Witch by Ronald Hutton. Speaking of books that are written for the layperson, this one is not. This is a large globe-wide survey of witchcraft beliefs across every continent except Antarctica, for obvious reasons. And oh boy, howdy, does it go deep with a capital duh. Ronald Hutton is a very engaging writer in terms of academic writing, and I reference this a lot in my papers. Good stuff. The Shaker Experience in America, colon, A History of the United Society of Believers by Stephen J. Stein. One of the two big papers I wrote this year was on the Shakers doing seances, and this book is still considered, I think it's about 20 years old, this book is still considered to be the book on the Shakers. If you want to know anything about Shaker history, this is a great place to start. And again, this is a this is a piece of academic writing that reads a lot more like uh, fiction. It's just, it's just bananas, some of the things in Shaker history. And oh boy, it was fun. Histories with a Y. Hysterical Epidemics and Modern Culture by Elaine Showalter. One of the key points that I was trying to explore with my witchcraft paper was the way in which someone's things that someone believes happen can be influenced by popular culture. And uh, I mentioned this to one of my profs, and I, because I, I'd sort of, you know, growing up, I, I read a lot of UFO books and things like that. And there's this sort of understanding that the types of aliens that people see, people who see UFOs, tend to reflect the types of aliens that have been appearing in cinema recently. So the sort of little gray alien kind of type 
appeared in some comics and, and illustrations and things first, and then people start describing it. And it's sort of, sort of this idea that like our popular culture influences our fantastical culture, our myths, our beliefs. And uh, I... <laughs> I kind of vaguely knew that, but I wanted something to sort of really get into the, the nitty gritty of that. And this book is about that. So it's about everything from the satanic panic to Gulf War syndrome to alien abductions. And it was written in the 90s. So, you know, alien abductions, Gulf War syndrome, satanic panic. That should give you an idea of like the era that this this is coming out. Uh, you know, the, reading about Ross Perot and, and, and stuff, is it's just, it's just, it's a blast from the past. But it's a really, really fascinating book. If you can get your hands on it, Super interesting. 15 Years in the Senior Order of Shakers, a narration of facts concerning that singular people by Hervey Elkins. Elkins was one of my key sources for my paper on shakers. Uh, his entire book is available for free on online because it's, you know, 150 years old. And oof -da, such weird stories. You know, growing up in this strange religious sect, you know, this new religious movement out in the middle of nowhere and... and and then doing seances, basically. It's, oh, it's good stuff. America's Communal Utopias. This is a collection edited by Donald E. Pitzer. And again, it's these new religious movements and sort of the ones that go off and start their own communities. So the Shakers are in here, the Quakers, the Hutterites, the um, uh, Father John Devine's uh, group, the, the MST, you know, all these people are in there. And uh, yeah, you know, very, very academic book, but also fun. Speaking of very academic books, this next book is my favorite academic book I read this year. And you want to talk about being incredibly, incredibly narrowly focused. This book is called Findings, The Material Culture of Needlework and Sewing by Mary C. Beaudry. This is entirely about how to identify archeological finds that are sewing related. So we're talking pins, needles, thimbles, uh, you know, spools, etc. It's so singularly, like, just, just very, very specific, but uh, super, super fun, super interesting. 1984 by George Orwell. Uh, another classic I missed. Glad I read it. It's the best sequel to The Time Machine ever written. Religion in Colonial America by John Butler. This is the uh, 1 in 10, 6 in 10 uh, historian. Highly recommend this as well. Uh, this is sort of a lower level one. So uh, A Washington Sea of Faith is sort of his much more uh, in-depth one. This is sort of a briefer survey that covers a lot of the same ground. Religion in Colonial America. The Communistic Societies of the United States by Charles Nordhoff. Uh, this... <laughs> this uh, is a survey of communes in the United States in the 1800s, written in the 1800s. It's very much a product of its time and is not the most readable thing I read this year. The Anatomy of the Soul by Kurt Thompson. This is a book about, how to explain this? This is a book I read because my dad was interested in it. It is attempting to understand spiritual concepts in modern Christianity through the lens of cutting-edge neuroscience. So again, there's a lot of sort of understanding of neuroplasticity and sort of rewiring our brains and things like that. This was the book my dad 
recommended to me after I gave him How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. So sort of a, a thing we're sharing back and forth. Honestly, this book doesn't need to exist. Like all the neuroscience stuff and everything he's explaining here appear in a lot of other neuroplasticity books, but he's writing it specifically for Christians. Uh, still, he's a fun writer and he's, his prose is excellent and he explains his thinking well. It's just, you know, it's very much uh, Jesus-y, Jesus-y, Jesus-y. Which if you're into that sort of thing, no judgment. I can't judge, but there you go. The Mouse Guard. Legends of the Guard, Volume 1, by various authors. I've never read any Mouse Guard books until now, and I don't know why. It's it's basically Turbo Redwall. It's good stuff, and this was no exception. This book is actually a series of short, um, short subjects in the Mouse Guard universe by a variety of authors. And so this was like a great introduction for me of sort of the vibe and the feel of it, while also getting a lot of different art styles and everything. The Circumference of Home by Kurt Holfting. Kurt Holting is a uh, Whidbey Island-based writer. And a few years ago, I think about in 2011 or something like that, he drew an 80-mile circle around his house and did not leave that circle for a year. And he did not travel in any internal combustion engine vehicles for that entire time. Oh, no, I think he took public transit. So he would take the bus or the ferry, but he wouldn't drive in a car or an airplane. Uh, and so he rode his bike everywhere. He walked. He he did all this hiking and kayaking and things like that. And just sort of writing about it. It's very much a middle-aged man explores the world kind of a book. But the basic concept I think is really interesting. It's like, look at what's actually around you instead of running off to the opposite side of the globe. And it was an important book for me to read because I, I have a tendency to poo-poo what's right outside my door in favor of what is thousands of miles away that I, I think is better and I'm more emotionally connected to. But uh, yeah, it was it was good. Matthias Buchinger, The Greatest German Living by Ricky Jay, whose peregrinations in search of the little man of Nuremberg are herein revealed. I love Ricky Jay. I love his writing. This is no exception. This is one of his funniest, most readable books. He can get really, really dry and his humor is incredibly dry, but this is definitely one of the funniest and most accessible books he wrote. Uh, it's out of print because Jay has passed away, but you can still get some copies on Amazon for fairly reasonable. Uh, keep your eyes open. It's a wonderful book. Ascender, Volume 1 by Jeff Lemire. Jeff Lemire is one of my favorite Midwest-based comic book artists. He's done, uh, he, he wrote Descender, he wrote Essex County, Trillium, uh, Sweet Tooth, and he wrote this whole sci-fi universe in Descender and at some point he kind of got bored of that and he's like, what if magic? So all of a sudden magic enters the equation and so it's a sci-fi universe that now has wizards and shit. Super fun. The History and Topography of Ireland by Gerald of Wales, translated by John O'Mara. The History and Topography of Ireland is... Oh boy, howdy. It's a travelogue of Ireland written in the Middle Ages by a guy who didn't like Ireland. It's hysterical and super xenophobic. I had a blast reading it. Uh, there's a lot of talking wolves. Good stuff. And finally, The Prefect by Alistair Reynolds. I read this yesterday because today's my birthday. and I, or yesterday was my, I read this the day before my birthday, two days ago. Uh, and, you know, just for fun. It's a sci-fi. I love Alistair Reynolds. He writes super hard sci-fi. He's a PhD astrophysicist who uh, from Belgium who lives in the Netherlands. 
and all the his sci-fi tech is super exotic and super weird and totally based in actual science so much fun check it out so that's all the books i read this year 121 books i can't believe it took me two hours to elucidate all of them for you elucidate explainate enunciate anyway in any case i've got a song for you all and uh we'll call it good i'm gonna i'm gonna tune up my uh my uke here really quick Hopefully. All right. Uh, this is a song about depression. <clears throat> you know, because it, it, it gets really depressing when you, when you contemplate the things that are, you know, not possible. I'll have seen a thing or three I've crossed two dozen countries And sailed the ocean green Traversed the driest deserts And climbed up mountain peaks But in all those years I'm worried There's one thing I'll never see I'll never see a unicorn I'll never see a unicorn I'll never see a unicorn Peace. 
never get Jeff Bezos to pay his fair share. So why should I care? Should I care? Cause at least I get to be here. And I guess that's okay. I don't know what else there is for me to say. I get to entertain you. And that gets me through to another day. I did a show for you It was long but we got through I thank you my friends for being at this artsy tableau When I did a show for you Thanks so much to all of you who support me every time I put one of these silly podcasts up online I don't know what I'd do if you didn't support me on Patreon I'm but I appreciate you and all my groceries with the money I get from this podcast I kid you not I did a show for you thanks my friends somehow we made it through and now I'll thank you for another year of this podcast it's true I can't wait for 2022 I mean 2021 will probably be okay it'll be another day strive to do things a different way. Hopefully some artists will get a bit of a pay. I need to stop this. Okay, 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 okay. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting me on Patreon. Until next time, my friends. I hope you're at a comfortable temperature and somewhere safe. Now I think it's time for this song to end. (laughs) I'll see y'all next time.